Hello there, uh, welcome to my next uh, Facebook Live, my last Facebook Live at this house. I know some of you who have been watching these over the last lot of months have come to love this place, uh, <laughs> but I am going back to Ireland for uh, a month and then I am coming back to LA and I'm going to be getting a, a new house. So I thought for this very last Facebook Live uh, in this house I would introduce you to my housemate. Connor Habib. Say hi, Connor. Hello, everybody. Uh, Connor's a good friend of mine as well as being my housemate. Uh, he, he has lots of things that he has done, but he is a writer, he is a teacher, he's an activist, uh, especially in terms of sex workers' rights and advocacy. Um, and uh, the year has been a good one. We've had lots of good conversations. A lot, yes. a lot of the books that you see in the background <laughs> are his books. The good ones, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm. He's got his library and my library are, you know, there's, there's some overlap. There's some overlap, yes. yeah. Um, so uh, I wanted to kind of like maybe ask you a few questions, have a conversation. I, one of the things that I really like about Connor um, is, and also the frustrating thing about him, <laughs> is he is very, very committed to listening to marginalised voices. And I mean like in terms of think, if marginalised philosophers, marginalized thinking in terms of the scientific community, in terms of politics. He has this real enjoyment of listening to the voices that don't have a seat at the table, uh, allowing them to critique what's happening. Now, of course, I love this. This is part of my theory and philosophy and I advocate it. The problem is when it's against my thinking. <laughs> That's the issue. You know, whenever he's like bringing thinkers in who kind of critique my orthodoxy, that's where the problem occurs. But um, yeah, would you say that's something that you're interested in? Yeah, sure. And um, a part of that comes from me having my own sort of marginalized timeline and identities or whatever, having, and, and even the sort of disciplines that I worked in. So, um, you know, I went to school, to grad school for the humanities, but I also studied the sciences. And then I, so, so in some sense, there was this outsiderness in each of those disciplines. Then I was studying the sciences, but I became this sort of deeply spiritual person, which is one of our places of uh, contention when we talk yes. in that, in that yes. thread. Um, and then um, after becoming this more developed spiritual person, I started doing sex work, and then you know those two things began to conflict. And so even in just the disciplines, there's a sort of marginality because I decide, I, which I did to myself, which I decided to sort of kick myself out of all the disciplines that I was in. But I am definitely interested in the sort of the voices that we think are maybe absurd or strange or weird. This is part of my preoccupation with the occult. I find these thinkers or who people might think are completely bonkers and I think to myself, okay, so what is the purpose of this? What is the contribution? What's interesting about this? Who was the thinker you just mentioned before we oh. switched this on? Yeah. As an example of this? Yeah, the utopian thinker, uh, Charles Fourier. And Fourier was, I, I'm gonna get the timeline wrong. And, I, and, and before we switched it on, I was like, I should check the years, but I forgot. So, right. so anyway, they, Charles- They don't know, they yeah, don't know anything. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. I, I, thought, I had so much faith in them. Yeah, I was no, like, oh, no, they know oh, Fourier. Yeah. The people who follow me, uh, yeah, no that's true. intelligence. That's, true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's hence they follow me. Yeah, the know? taste yeah. question, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so, so Fourier would have this whole elaborate um, idea of 
what culture should be, he said that there should be something called a sexual minimum where everybody was guaranteed a certain amount of sexual pleasure, that uh, beautiful people had the moral duty to have sex with people who weren't as attractive, <laughs> that that people could have There's their pets. for me in yes, this world. Yes, there is. <laughs> <laughs> um, that people, <laughs> that um, people could have pet giraffes, that the oceans would taste like lemonade, all this kind of stuff. So you have this huge, elaborate, crazy vision. And so... Um, what I'm interested in is what happens when we take that seriously? What happens when we sort of work towards that margin and start to sort of uh, cut down the roadblocks getting there? Like, how would we have pet giraffes and sexual minimums then? You know, what, and what do I learn from doing that in my own thinking? And this, this, this connects with my interest in psychoanalysis because in psychoanalysis, it's one of the first disciplines that takes seriously the visions of the patient, the analyzer. So you come in and you can kind of go like there are snakes under the bed. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I can't eat food that's the color purple. Uh, all dentists are out to get me. And the analyst doesn't laugh. They don't mock. They, and not even internally, they go like, I'm gonna take this absolutely seriously. And I'm gonna to listen to it. And I'm gonna see if there's some truth, some deep meaning in what you're describing. So it's a form of it's a form of literalism, mm -hmm. and that that in a sense opens up new worlds and, and 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 opens things up that you can't otherwise see. Right. Yeah. There's a, there's some sense in which analysis is almost like a utopia in itself because it's everything is accepted in its own way. Everything has its place, and so I, you know, as someone who has done four years of analysis with Lacanian analyst, two different Lacanian analysts. <laughs> so that's a place where Peter and I really overlap. Um, I've undergone, you know, the sort of process that he's really interested in studying the philosophical aspect of. One of the most profound things to me about analysis was that my, <laughs> my uh, analyst, the first one especially, he just took everything seriously that I said, so I knew that there was complete freedom in my mind. It's like, it, free, freedom, not, because nothing was dismissed, nothing was rejected. And what a tremendous freedom that was and what that allowed me to be able to uh, tell him. And then, because of that, what kind of links I could make. Because, you know, as someone who's a sex worker's rights advocate, I, I encounter um, questions of shame all the time. And I see shame as this sort of like wall between connective tissue, things that could happen, pathways to freedom, pathways to new behaviors, new actions, all that kind of stuff. And so we're shamed in our own thoughts all the time. And when you go to analysis, you're not. I was, yeah, I was going to say that and that we have these marginal voices in ourselves. We all believe things that are not part of the dominant story. And we often don't have grace or a space of grace where we can like share those, even with ourselves, let alone anyone else. We have beliefs that we're not aware of. I mean, we've looked at this in previous Facebook Lives, but people believe all sorts of things that they're not even consciously aware of, believing in ghosts, but you, you don't really believe in ghosts until you turn the lights out. And then, then you think there's something under the bed. But in psychoanalysis, you take all of that seriously. Mm -hmm. And not, not just as a game, but to go, this is a royal road to some truth. And it, it's something that is useful, something that is good. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, part of the whole idea of psychoanalysis, and I think this might connect with what you're saying, is that it's against adaptation. In the sense of the role of a good psychoanalytic 
practice is not to help you adapt to society mm -hmm. so that you're a better worker, so that you fit in better in society, etc. Um, in a sense, it, uh, it, it provides a space where you can become a critical engager with culture, a transformer of culture, that you can find enjoyment in not fitting in, in being in the world but not of it that you can take the dissatisfaction of being in the world and, and find some sort of enjoyment kind of in that dissatisfaction. And in the same way, ideologically, I see your work of bringing in marginal voices as a way to critique dominant orthodoxies mm -hmm. uh, so as that new possibilities might open up. Because if we don't have those marginal voices, I guess these orthodoxies become too rigid. Yeah, and in a sense, it's it's it's... <clears throat> a critique for sure, but really a lot of it is just sort of normalizing it. A lot of it is saying, like when you say ghosts, it's like, how many people have seen ghosts? Like, can we normalize this idea instead of pretending that it's some aberrant thing, right? Or let's bring it down to a more practical level. Um, when you talk about marginalized voices and how we marginalize voices within ourselves, Think about how crazy people think when they're like, I couldn't quit my job, I couldn't leave my wife, I couldn't leave my husband, whatever, these things that seem absolutely, utterly impossible. We treat ourselves as crazy to even think those thoughts, right? And so, as you said, we all have these sort of aspects in ourselves that we push out to the margins. And because we do that, they become uh, reified, they become concretized within us as like the absolute standard bearer of what we are able to think and feel. And so for me, it's not just a question of, um, it's, not just, it's not just a question of like asking these occulty questions, which you and I talk about mm -hmm. sometimes, like, are ghosts real? What are angels? That kind of stuff, which drives people. He yeah. asks the questions. I ask the questions <laughs> over and over to Peter. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> sometimes just knock on the door at night. Hey, Peter, are angels real? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but also that we all have versions of things that seem completely impossible to us out of the realm of what is we're even capable of. And I think it's like, we com confronting those questions, so for me, having done this sort of sex worker advocacy, having been interested in the occult, having to have confront my own sexuality as someone who's a, you know, a man who's attracted to men, all this kind of stuff. What? Having gone through, yes, revelation here today. <laughs> <laughs> but having gone through all these sort of um, steps of impossibility, I love casting it like as far as possible. Yes. Like, what if this crazy thing is real? What if this, you know? So um, we we sort of get gradually to our own margins, and then we go a little further and a little further and a little further internally. So what if we did that culturally? I'd like to do that. And that's one of the things. One of the things that uh, brings you to anthropology. I mean, anthropology is yeah. potentially one of the disciplines that tries to very much take seriously. The whole narrative of a culture and the stories and the the, the underlying mythologies and, and takes it absolutely seriously. So anthropology and psychoanalysis have some sort of, mm -hmm. of link there, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's my my and he's bringing up um, my deepening interest in anthropology. I've always been interested in anthropology, but deepening more and more 
um, with these sort of newer anthropologists that I've been encountering, people like Michael Tausig and Bruno Latour, and uh, this guy, uh, Viveros Castro, who wrote this book called Cannibal Metaphysics. These are people that, because they've lived with other cultures who are, and cultures that are, seem utterly different from their own, have to take everything seriously just to even do their discipline. So that means taking magic seriously, that means taking spirits, ritual, all these kinds of things and saying, instead of just saying, oh, that's ridiculous, these people are primitive, they don't do, the anthropologists hopefully don't do that anymore. They've sort of graduated beyond that way of thinking. Yeah. Bruno yeah. Latour is a fascinating thinker. Um, wh where this connects, I think, with some of the stuff that we've looked at uh, on these Facebook Lives previously is in kind of my increasing interest in the absurd, uh, my increasing interest in us as human beings encountering the space where our beliefs begin to fracture, our ways of thinking about the world begin to dissolve, where we, in a sense, almost experience a childlike terror of existence where we where we don't quite know why things work the way they do what it's all about where we are so you know whenever you have jesus says become like a child and you've got those beautiful christmas cards and it looks beautiful but actually being a child is full of terror trauma anxiety <laughs> because to become like a child is to experience a world falling apart, a world blown to pieces, a world where we feel fragmented and fractured in a world that seems fragmented and fractured. So the idea of become like a child could be read as the most terrifying of things that we try <laughs> to protect ourselves from at all costs. But when you open yourself up to marginal discourses, you can experience that childlike um, uh, short-circuiting, rewiring, and ultimately rebooting of the self. Yeah, I think it, I would almost call it like a productive alienation, right? It's like, instead of it being the kind of alienation that people feel, if you want to talk in like Marxist terms about like, you know, uh, the division of labor and all that kind of stuff, and people feeling alienated from the process, it's, um, you become, you become an alien to the place where you're supposed to be, or where, where you know, so you see the world in front of you, and it, you're seeing it differently than everybody else. And that, of course, I mean, we should not be so like naive to not think that that won't cause us some pain and suffering, but it becomes this productive thing, you know? I mean, even if, if I just take a moment of when I was a teenager in class, actually, I was younger, I think it was like nine or 10 because I was in uh, elementary school, and I remember thinking to myself, wait, why do I have to raise my hand to ask a question? And from that moment on, I resented that I had to do that. And I knew that I was seeing something that other people didn't see. Yeah. It would have caused me pain and I got in trouble yeah, <laughs> because yeah. of it. But it also taught me this intense lesson about the sort of obedience structure that I was supposed to be in. But I had somehow become free from it and yet still had to engage yeah. in, in some way. Yeah. Now my, my concern, this is one of the things we've discussed, my concern with all of this is <laughs> there's a difference between the psychotic position and the mm. hysterical or neurotic position. Mm. So in short, um, a psychotic kind of approach to life questions the dominant narrative, you know, absolutely, but in search of a deep underlying narrative. So for example, in politics, <clears throat> there's the deep state <clears throat> or something that underneath all the contingency and craziness of existence, there is some spiritual or, or material order that actually kind of anchors the craziness. Whereas a hysteric approach um, 
doesn't have that underlying anchoring, you know, this deep state or this deep underlying structure that ultimately contains the chaos of reality. So my thing is, when you get a marginalized thinker, they can critique your worldview, critique your, critique your system, draw you into this experience of the absurd, which I'm really interested in. Um, however, my concern is that when that's done in the service of creating a new, but just very minority, uh, totalizing system, ideological, political, religious. Right. Yeah, well, that's the Lacan warning in May of 68, right, when the students came to him and they were like, what do you think about this? And he said, well, you don't really want revolution. You're seeking, uh, you're seeking new masters, right? And you will, and you will get one. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that's something we always have to be on, on guard of. I mean, I think, you know, so one of the thinkers that I'm really invested in is this guy, uh, Rudolf Steiner. I won't talk about him too much. Peter's really sick of him at this point, but he's this late 19th, early 20th century sort of mystic philosopher, scientist guy. And, um, you know, something he said is like, the world is not made out of things, but evolving states of consciousness. Now, what the important part for what we're talking about is the evolving aspect, is the fact that sort of things are always in flux, they're always changing. The sort of com composition of the world that we're in is always undergoing something. And that doesn't mean progress necessarily, it just means, because evolution doesn't necessarily mean progress, it just means change. So. So sort of the only fixity that you have in sort of interpreting and encountering the world is uh, the fixity of, okay, well, it's just going to keep, it's just going to stay in flux. It's just going to be this push and pull of these forces again and again and again. So, I mean, even, even if you don't have this sort of narrative where it's like, well, we're going to replace capitalism with communism, right, which is what Lacan was talking about, you will still have this sort of replacement narrative, I feel, that's like, I'm going to replace the idea that I can replace things with this idea that they're always going to be changing and in yeah. flux. Yeah. This is actually, this gets to the heart of the way I understand faith. Um, that faith is the embedded, embodied commitment to the flow and change of existence. Mm -hmm. Even though sometimes that's chaotic and leads to bad things. I mean, that's the thing you were saying about evolution. Evolution can lead to dead ends. Mm -hmm. We've got oil because of like, the death of billions of creatures but but faith it, um and you know it took me a while to unpack this but faith as the embodied giving yourself over to the flow of being the rupturing of existence learning to live within that to affirm it to enjoy it to see it as central to what it is to be human um, and to turn that to the good to social transformation is what i mean that's the political dimension of pyrotheology that's that's how this, this begins to play out. Mm, yeah, I mean, a faith in, in, in some sense, you know, when you and I talked after the election, and I won't go into that <laughs> too much, but when you and I talked, you know, I'd asked you about a friend of yours, which you can say or not say, but uh, a friend of yours who seemed sort of un, unfazed. And I had also said, well, I feel kind of unfazed. Yeah. I wonder, does your friend, <clears throat> you know, have faith, believe in God or whatever? And I said, you know, part of the reason why this is not phasing me is because I'm making yeah. But it's because I have this sort of um, s stability in me that's been brought out by activism, that's been brought out by feeling marginalized before this election already, that's been brought out by my understanding of the sort of, whether it's metaphysics or ontology or whatever of, of the world and universe, I have this sort of s solidity that allows me to act even in the eye of 
uh, what might seem like crisis. So it's not that I don't recognize that the political events can be challenging or difficult or problematic. It's that I don't feel that it changes the way that I go out into the world and, and, and respond. And that's how, what I would refer to as faith, is some sort of um, uh, intense inner intensity that allows me to continue to act and continue to be myself yeah. without delusion either. I can still see and go forward. Yeah. yeah. And this is for me um, the difference between belief in the absurd and faith in the absurd. Be you can't believe in the absurd because belief is... The absurd is the rupture in the belief. Yeah. <laughs> the, you can kind of believe in the absurdism. You believe that we live in a, a, a space mm -hmm. where we, you know, don't know the answers. But the absurd is the experience of entering into a flow where our beliefs are constantly being ruptured and reconfigured. But you can have faith in the absurd, which is a commitment to live in that and to navigate it and to, you know, to move mm -hmm. within it. So to swim within the waters of the chaos, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of this Ionesco play. I think it's the rhinoceros, Eugene Ionesco, who's an absurdist playwright. And there are two people speaking, and it's a very famous intro scene, and um, they're speaking to each other, and the dialogue is like, they keep saying the same thing. So they're saying, uh, I, today I went down the street and bought you know, a baguette at the store. I'm just I'm butchering it, I don't remember mm -hmm. the exact. And, and the friend says, what a coincidence, I too went down and bought, and they, and they keep saying the same thing, so they're like, what a coincidence, I too live at 1540 Haverford Lane, and my wife's name is Susan, you know, and they keep saying the same thing, and it's like, they, they don't stop engaging, the friendly engagement continues, even though there's obviously something extremely disturbing happening, you yes. know, it's very funny, oh, very yeah. Good. Right. yeah. Here, by the way, we should look and see if there's any questions, if you're up for it. Yeah, yeah, um, do we need to plug your... Well, yeah, we're running out of battery power, but I think we're okay for a bit. Okay. Um, Fourier, F-O-U-R-I-E-R. Uh, we all have, so uh, Wanji Kim, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, we all have beliefs that are not conscious, we're not consciously aware of, but therapy for those with severe mental disorder needs something more than allowing them to be to adapt, not to adapt, something more than psychoanalysis, which is helpful. So if I hear you right, you're saying, yes, if someone is, has like a serious psychotic break, um, they need to, in, in some sense, they're, they're not adapting at all to the world. Mm. Uh, first of all, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jung, and I'm not a huge fan of Jung, um, but I appreciate some of his writings. Um, you know, he, he, he talks about the goal of psychoanalysis as attempting to help the person uh, enter critically into the world. So a critical antagonistic or agonistic relationship to, to the reality that they're in. And that's an interesting thing for me because in a sense the psychotic is the one who is outside the world entirely. They are in a sense in their own world. Whether you can think of a psychotic religious structure where you're a little tiny cult that just doesn't engage with the world in any kind of way. And then there's perverse structures, like some evangelical structures that are so in the world that it just looks like a concert and um, everybody looks like rock stars and it's just so, and everyone's in, it does interesting jobs. It's so immersed in the cultural uh, hegemonic system, right? That there's no engagement. That the role is to kind of create a neurotic, someone who's in the world but not of it. So depending on whether you're working with psychotic or perverse structure, 
um, you're going different directions. But so yeah, for for a psychotic person, yeah, you're you're trying to in one sense reintegrate them to some extent within the world, but it's not pure adaptation. But yeah, I think that's a good point. Do you have anything you want to add? No, not or really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, lots of kind of comments and people saying hi. Um, I should have actually said you're free to ask questions before I started, but actually my phone is about to die. So how oh, can we not? There's that's Kathleen. Hey Kathleen, I know Kathleen. How can we not have a replacement narrative? What makes us human is meaning making. It is meaning making systems that cause us to differentiate to develop the self. If we have no structure um, of meaning, um, oh then it cuts off. I think I get what you're saying, which is basically we're meaning creating beings, we're order creating beings. And are we saying that in one sense, you blew all of that up? And I, don't, I, I mean, I, I'll answer your answer, but like, yeah, I'm not saying that at all, Kathleen. I want to say that we are, we are already embedded in a language. We're embedded in a culture. We're embedded in a whole kind of complex matrix of ideas before we even think critically. And the idea is you live within that, but you just experience the fractures. It's like a net, and it, the net grasps a certain amount of things, and a certain amount of other things slip through the net. And we all have that, but it's kind of acknowledging the the, the what 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 Derrida called deconstruct the, the auto deconstruction of existence, which is that not that you deconstruct, you pull things apart. It's that that, that nothing totalizes; everything has within it things that are missing, promises that haven't been fulfilled. And, and you, so to, de to deconstruct is still to live within a narrative, a culture, a tradition, to respect it and to love it, but also to, to constantly critically, engage, critically look at it in relation to the voice of the outsider. Mm. Yeah, so, and, and to answer that question, um, what I would say, and it ties into your net, um, is I mean, if you think of like the classic uh, movie picture of someone who's paranoid, right? If you look at their wall, they have all the like strings connecting everything, and it's like uh, this person's attached, you know, attached to this secret Illuminati group, and this person is like, you know, uh, came here from Mars with the lizard people, that blah blah blah, and it's all like all these strings connecting everything. That actually is a representation of how everybody thinks. It's just that with a paranoid conspiracy theorist, that's just on the surface, right? So what, what, because things are not, things are connected in so many different ways, so many different causal patterns, so many different reasons for things that we can't ever necessarily know the actual truth, truth, right? So the, the, the paranoid person is saying, I absolutely know that all these connections exist, right? We do and that. They're also simplifying in a sense, like the yes. paranoid person is simplifying and trying to, trying to root all the connections, which yes. are actually multiplicity and... Right, exactly. They're trying to create a single anchor. It's very yeah. reductive in a way. Yeah, right? yeah. And so we all do that to some extent. We all connect events that are not necessarily connected to... It's like a flip book. It's like each picture is slightly different, but they're not. it's not a continuous motion. We like flip through these similar pictures to create some sort of picture of meaning, right? So the idea is not to not have any meaning but to go towards the meaning that you want, which is something very different. It's like, how, how, can I, how can I actually get into a pattern of choosing meaning? And also, how can I want the meaning that I've chosen, right? Rather than being oppressed by the meaning that I've chosen. And that's, 
I mean, it's a difficult task. I mean, and, and I liken that, again, I mean, not, I'm just bringing up Lacan a lot because Peter's sitting next to me, so it's horrible, but he says, you know, don't, basically he says something that's translatable different ways, but don't ever give up on your desire, right? It's like, if I keep trying to incorporate my wanting of my own desires into my life, then I get to pick the map that's on the wall instead of paranoically, like, tying everything together um, in, in a way that doesn't feel good, that feels like I just am cowering in the corner. And yeah, and another thought off the back of this as well is like I'm very interested in the idea that that actually the, the rule is to find out what mean structures we already have. You know, like you're saying that like we all have these kind of thinking, but it's not on the surface. Like a lot of it is saying yes, we are meaning creating beings. We we are beings with lots of beliefs that we're not even really aware of. And actually, a lot of a lot of the job. And the work is simply being honest about our systems of belief, what we really believe. There's lots of people who say they believe in God, for example, who in a sense don't. If you kind of look at the way they interact with the world, and there's lots of people who say they don't believe in, say, a God, but who, you know, believe, as they believe in supernatural forces when you know, they think there's a monster behind the, the bed or whatever. So in one sense, coming to know what meaning structures you already have, what beliefs you already have. But I think by doing that, by doing that, you also uh, make them more contingent. By becoming aware of your desires and your beliefs, bringing them to the surface, you becoming aware of them, you some of them dissipate, some of them remain, but ultimately you start to also get a feeling for, this what I mean by the absurd, but the contingency of existence. You still have your desires, you still have all mm. of that, but they are actually less oppressive. That's the idea in psychoanalysis. The more you bring stuff to the surface, the less oppressive and, and, and um, strong they are, and the more pliability you have with them. Yeah, I mean, a really sort of easy one, I think, for me to pull apart is when it comes to sexuality, right? So it's like, if you have the assumption um, that heterosexuality is the norm, right? When, well, and, and you start to do something that's a bit like a deconstructive act um, with that, like, Okay, so is that true? Well, yeah, I mean, most people are heterosexual, you would say that. Okay, but what marks heterosexuality? Is it people not having sex with people of the same sex? Well, that happens in prison, that happens in experimentation, that happens in uh, different cultures, that's happened throughout history, that happened in ancient Greece. Okay, uh, well, does it mean like not holding hands or falling in love? Well, look at all these love letters from people of the same sex to each other in the 18th and 19th century that you can find this overwhelming love. Does it mean not holding hands? Well, people in Middle Eastern cultures do that of the same sex all the time. They kiss each other on the lips, right? Does it mean nature? Well, actually in nature, most animals exhibit bisexual behavior, not exclusively heterosexual or exclusively homosexual. So you begin to sort of roll back all these assumptions and you think to yourself, oh, wow, the norms. But that, that's probably not gonna make you start feeling homosexual desire if you're heterosexual. It's just gonna teach you something about the structure of your own desire. And then you can start sort of loosening up the ideas that you have about your own desire structure and those of people that are uh, attracted to someone of the same sex. And it begins to sort of show you, well, maybe there are cultural influences here. Maybe there are uh, expectations and assumptions and all that sort of stuff. And what does that tell me now? Um, that I've accepted these and what might that mean that they intersect with my desire, which is still there. I still am attracted to people of the opposite sex. Not me, my gosh, that's an abomination. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, very cool. Well here, 
thank you for tuning in. Um, I'm so glad we got to have this conversation. We've we'll been talking about doing something like this for a long time. So literally the last the, day. The last day. That gives you an idea of how much we procrastinate. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So, you know, I'm glad we got to do this. Yeah, and, me too. Um, I'll miss living with you. But I know. We'll still hang out. You know, hopefully be around the corner. I know, right? Yeah. I, yeah I'm. He's He's been actually, it, believe it or not, an absolute pleasure to work Oh well, and you too, man. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Don't you. touch me. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only touch me. Ever <laughs> um, should, um, so, can I tell people how to find me? Oh Is yeah, right? absolutely. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Yeah. So if you if you like, so I only have Twitter. Light I don't handle. Yes, say his name three times. Shine backwards. the Connor Habib symbol in the sky. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just at Connor Habib C O N N E R H A B I B on Twitter. Um, which is sometimes a little racy, so just be prepared <laughs> for that. Yeah. But um, and you're welcome for that. But uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, feel free to say hello whenever you want. And thank you so much for doing this with me. I've been like waiting to do this with you forever. Maybe yeah. we'll do it after you move back. When I get back. Yeah. Right. Thank right. you. All right. Take care, everybody. Have a great Christmas. I'll probably do one of these in Belfast. So we'll oh, do a Christmas good. edition. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and if you live in LA, I've got an event on. Pints and Parables, 12th of January. The half the tickets are gone, so buy your ticket and be there. All right, take care.